Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 43, and Maggie and I are back. Maggie, now in, you are actually in your house, right? I love this game where it's like, where's Maggie now? <laughs> we'll be able to do like a, you know, this, this, the, you know, Maggie's progress, right? Exactly. Can we, can we do it? Middle Earth, Middle Earth meets Indiana Jones. You can just have a little red line across <laughs> right. the middle um yeah right. I, I think i'm gonna be pretty boring for the coming few weeks though i'm i'm here in my home i have really fast internet i found my ring light i have not <laughs> yet found my microphone so i hope the sound is okay and right before we started i had to move a basket of diapers because that's an old mattress <laughs> and boxes behind me and i'm not right. turning my camera around but trust me it's just boxes boxes yeah. all the way down but that's still progress yeah we're getting there but awesome. we're excited for tonight because we're just saying like how long it's been since we've had some normalcy. And yeah, I think it'll be fun to just kind of come back to the comfort food of uh, discussing dwarves. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So today we're going to be um, we're going to go back to. Well, we'll we'll sort of start with the Lord of the Rings films, but not just the Lord of the Rings films. We want to uh, we, we talked about Legolas and Gimli because we were looking at different characters and, and ways that uh, sort of the the ways that those characters were depicted and the, the, the sort of the way that their roles in the story were uh, taken and, uh, you know, changed or, um, you know, uh, where they remain the same. Um, and we wanted to talk more about dwarves because, of course, the discussion about Gimli kind of began that. And there's a really interesting... Uh, uh, sort of contrast to be done here. I think, well, not just contrast in the sense of pointing out differences, but um, there's a there's a there's a really interesting field of study in in kind of widening that discussion a little bit um, to not only be looking at the depiction of dwarves in Tolkien compared to the depiction of dwarves in the films, but then also to be thinking about how the depiction of dwarves changes. Um, between the Lord of the Rings films, the Hobbit films, and then the Rings of Power, yeah, uh, as well. Um, which is to me, so like the idea of looking at the evolution of dwarf depiction in the adaptations is a particularly interesting one because of how interesting it is to look at the evolution of the depiction of dwarves in Tolkien as well, um, and where that is. And of course, as it's, it's a it's a timely topic, as those who have been attending my Wednesday night classes can uh, can attest. We've just been talking about, uh, you know, we, so we are currently discussing the the War of the Jewels, the book which is at certain angles invisible on my screen because it's green. Um, but um, uh, we, we're talking about the War of the Jewels. And so we, we just finished last night, we just finished uh, talking about the section uh, on concerning dwarves and really looking at these moments when Tolkien himself um, was buckling down to doing some serious world building about dwarves, really answering questions like what in fact are dwarves? Where did they come from? You know, what's what's kind of going on with them? Um, and one of the things that I would um, really emphasize about this that makes this such an interesting question, he's doing this several years after the publication of The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that is to say, he didn't have the answers to these questions. Right. He's um, figuring it out later. Absolutely. That. Even Gimli himself is still 
one of the primary vehicles for Tolkien's discovery about dwarves, rather than, you know, like uh, Tolkien's poster boy or spokesperson for, you know, the idea of dwarves that he already had in his head. He didn't know about dwarves. Um, and, um, uh, and they had had a really interesting history. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to get too luxury, especially since I've like just been doing like three hours of of, of you know discussion of this in my other uh, in my other discussion. But a brief overview. Um, I I break it down to um, uh, so dwarf dwarf 1.0 in Tolkien's imagination. Uh, dwarf 1.0, which you can find in the Book of Lost Tales, um, the oldest version of Tolkien's Legendarium. Dwarves are just bad guys. They are just like orcs. They are children of Melkor. They are in the list that includes orcs and trolls and dwarves. They're just flat out, straight up bad guys. Um, then he kind of takes it back a little bit. Like the first movement in the uh, concept of dwarves, uh, what I call Dwarf 2.0, uh, then comes in at uh, like the Quentin Olderinwa. So we're like 1930s. Um, uh, early, like the sketch of the mythology and, and the, the, the Quentin Olderin was we're talking about between 1928 and 1930. Um, I, I emphasize the dates here because this is very important because The Hobbit is written in 1930, right? So um, Dwarf 2.0 was the idea of dwarf that he had in his head when the dwarves show up at Bilbo's door in The Hobbit, okay? Right. And Dwarf 2.0 is no longer a bad guy. They're no longer a, a ch they're no longer enlisted in the children of Melkor, um, like they were the first time. Um, but they are they're sort of neutral parties. They are war profiteers. They're still scumbags, basically. I mean, like they're war profiteers. Um, they they're merchants who sell weapons to both sides. Basically, they're they're making weapons for the orcs and they're making weapons for the elves uh, and they're, you know, counting their money all the way to the bank. Like, that's what the cool. dwarves are about. Um, also, he says that although they are craftsmen, although they do make things, that's not what they mostly like. Mostly they like buying and selling um, and they don't make beautiful things. Um, they uh, they you know they, they they will make useful things but they care again they, they care more about the about the, 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 the dollar value than they care well dollars right they care more more about the value the monetary value than they care about the craftsmanship they don't that's not what activates them um, then the dwarves show up so this is these are the dwarves that show up at Bilbo's door in The Hobbit. And if you approach The Hobbit thinking about these kinds of dwarves, uh, very often we think about dwarves um, like w when we read The Hobbit. If we read The Hobbit and we're, we know The Lord of the Rings, right? You can't not think about Gimli when you're going back and reading the story that is literally about his dad, right? You know, his dad is one of the main characters. And so you kind of import uh, the what we learn about the dwarves from like what we see in Gimli personally, what we learn about the dwarves from Gimli, and what we see in the appendix on Durin's folk in Appendix A at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's easy to kind of import that stuff, and then you read The Hobbit from that perspective. And if you do, you'll you'll there, there'll be some things that won't really land with you, um, uh, that you probably will kind of look or and some parts that will seem actively weird. Like for instance, uh, the 
to the point near the end um, when they're in the, when they're at the Lonely Mountain. When not Smaug, so Smaug insults the dwarves and tells Bilbo to watch his back because once that that the dwarves are unlikely to keep any bargains that they've made with him, um, and that um, th- they're probably going to betray him, especially if there is money at stake. Um, you know, like so when Smaug starts saying things like, "Oh, did they promise you a fourteenth share? Hope you got that in writing." Like, do you think they're really gonna like when all when it comes down? Do you think they're you know they're gonna really stay true to that? And Bilbo has a really sinking like horrible feeling when he's listening to Smaug there. Now, Smaug is a liar and malicious, but he's also not wrong. That's exactly what Dwarf 2.0 was like. Um, and the narrator himself. So, but it's not just Smaug's words, which again, are those are malicious. Like, I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's probably doing them dirty, right? Except actually, no, not really. He's not really doing them dirty. The narrator himself, remember, says, you know, like, you know, dwarves are not heroes, right? Dwarves are not heroes. Uh, some, like Thorin and company, you know, are fairly good lots if you don't expect too much, right? Um, what we what we are told by the narrator that we are getting are, you know, these, uh, you know, like again, remember the narrator saying in the Hobbit saying things like, you know, that dwarves are, uh, dwarves are not heroes. Um, you know, but but uh, cunning folk with a very uh, high sense of the value of money, right? Um, when you read uh, the Dwarf 2.0 stuff from the Quentin Olderinwa uh, and the the Quest of the... And then you come back and read The Hobbit. It's like, holy cow, it's like a different book. Like, you're seeing the dwarves as Tolkien was imagining them at the time. And the effect of that is when Thorin changes at the end. Thorin's deathbed scene hits like a ton of bricks in that context. He's really changed. Um, and on, and I believe that it is that moment, it is the moment, not just the deathbed scene, but Thorin's charge at the end of The Hobbit in the battle, um, his sacrificial charge. That's the moment when Dwarf 3.0 comes into being. Dwarves begin changing there. at the Not at the beginning, but at the end of The Hobbit. And by the time we then get to Gimli, Gimli is like the full exploration of Dwarf 3.0. But he didn't even have, like, explanations for... There were things that he was saying. I'm pretty convinced in reading the stuff that he then wrote a couple years later, trying to work out dwarf stuff, that when he said things like... Travelers have a hard, you know, uh, can, uh, uh, you know, have a hard time telling female dwarves apart from male dwarves. He didn't even know what he was talking about. Like, he literally sits down to be like, uh, "What does that mean? Like, let me try to figure that out." Like, a, like, to what extent is that? Like, what, what does that actually mean? And to what extent is that true? Um, so I think he hadn't even answered in his own mind the question like do dwarf women have beards and then he sits down and thinks about it he's like no yeah yeah i think they do like babies too like dwarves pop pop out with beards everybody all the dwarves have beards um and then he asked the question why like why would that be why 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 would that why would dwarf why would dwarves alone of species like have like males and females have virtually no phys you know physiological distinction yeah between the two of them like why would that be and then he starts to give mythological explanations for why that would be right um but um anyway so it's uh he's it's very very late in the it is literally after pretty much all of his published writings that he's actually sitting down and saying huh i wonder what dwarves actually are i wonder what the story really is there so it's um in some ways, 
there is a um, a kind of blanker slate for adaptation for dwarves than almost anything else in Tolkien's world. There's a sense in which even Ents are more clearly defined. Like the the chap the Treebeard chapter in the Two Towers gives this long, rich like exploration of who the Ents are, what their history is, what it's like to be them, what their priorities are. Right? Like we, we learn more about Ents, where they came from, who they are, and what they're interested in than we ever do about dwarves before we get to the, even though they only get, you know, the Ents only get like the one chapter, but, you know, they get other references, but, um, um, but most of what we know from Ents, we derive from that one chapter, and yet it's more, literally. I mean, though, though everybody feels like they know dwarves really well. Yeah. Like Tolkien's dwarves are really effective, nevertheless. Like people come out and like people read the Lord of the Rings and are like, I love dwarves. I'm a huge dwarf fan without even like processing like how little actual substance there is there. I mean, again, it's it, it's I'm, I'm not knocking it. It's it's marvelous how Tolkien succeeds in conveying this sense of dwarvishness with so comparatively little. Um, That's what I was going to agree yeah. with you. Just, there's so much there that is wonderful, rich fodder for adaptation that yes. he was adapting his own idea the whole time. I yeah. feel like the general populace was also changing their depictions. I mean, we had Snow White and the Seven Dwarves during this time. We had like all these fairy tale resurgences. Yeah. You know, well, and keep in mind, we had Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in the same month The Hobbit came yeah. out, like literally yeah. at the same yeah. time. Yes, the same exact time. <laughs> so um, the entire like Western world planet basically was reevaluating what dwarf meant to yeah. themselves. Yeah, and Tolkien was kind of annoyed at the time that his like book was like finally being prepared to come out. The entire marketplace in the UK was awash in little Disney dwarf figurines, right? Um, which were not representative his of his vision <laughs> right <laughs> yes. but i do think that's what makes it so powerful that everyone kind of had a, a vague understanding of what dwarf meant and because he was so vague in his definition it made it that much more malleable like everybody could see their own version realized in his definition because it was so vague so yeah. people latching on to the bits that they love and putting their own interpretation onto that world building were able to pull out the bits that they wanted to latch on to. Yeah. And then filmmaking, I want us to get into all the adaptations, but same kind of thing. Like, I feel like there was not so little in the text, but there was what there was, was, was so malleable that the dwarves that we got are so different and that's okay. You know, they each kind of took what they needed from it to make yeah. the dwarf that they had. Some we yeah. liked, some we didn't, but yeah, yeah it's, the dwarves are just a really neat one, like a case yeah. study when you're looking at adaptation because they facilitate a lot. Yeah, they are. One quick quick clarification in response to Namos Arcanum here. Um, uh, asks, uh, yes, in, in the, in the, this is in the context of works that were published in Tolkien's lifetime. Yes. Um, so many of you might be thinking of the Aule and Yavanna chapter in the Silmarillion where we learn about where dwarves came from and everything. That was... <laughs> written like four years after The Return of the King was published. Um, that chapter in The Silmarillion is, I think, okay, the last thing written by J.R.R. Tolkien in the latest thing written by J.R.R. Tolkien in the Quentus Silmarillion portion of the Silmarillion. It's even, he had already written the Athrobath, almost everything. I mean, of all the texts that Christopher is pulling together um, to 
create the published Silmarillion. Um, that one is one of the latest documents that he's pulling in. Um, so, so again, if you if you come to it that way, right? I mean, if you if you if you are a like a you know a sort of modern Tolkien, you know, modern in the sense of like post Silmarillion, you know, post nineteen seventy seven Tolkien reader, which is most of us, I think, um, not all, but most. Um, uh, then, you know, and, and so if, if basically your Tolkien fandom has always been premised on, like, I, you know, I've been reading The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion, right? Um, it might seem strange to you that I'm saying there's so little about dwarves, because he does sort of work out the sort of mythological explanation and, and show how dwarves fit. That's exactly what I was referring to at the beginning. That's the stuff that he works up out at the end of the line after everything else he's written has been published. Um and Christopher was able to incorporate some of that material into the published Silmarillion in the end. Um, but but when you approach that, unlike much of the rest, I mean, the Silmarillion is, is, is really hard that way because there are some of the things that you're reading when you're reading the published Silmarillion that are things that he wrote in 1930. Like the, right. the story of the fall of Gondolin in the published Silmarillion was written in, in 1930. Um, whereas then some parts th that you're reading, like the Ovalle and Yavanna chapter, was written 30 years later by Tolkien. Wow. So it's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's, it's very different. But yeah, it's, no, I'm, really glad, I'm really glad that you asked that because I didn't address the published Silmarillion specifically. But um, yeah, it's one of the things about teaching my way through the history of Middle-earth, as I've been doing, that I like... Um, one of the effects of going through that in so much detail is that in some ways, like on some days I can like forget that the Silmarillion exists because like, instead of thinking about the published Silmarillion, like that book that Christopher put together, drawing from all of these raw, like I just have the raw materials in my head. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm thinking of like Tolkien's work on his legendarium over the course of his whole life. Um, uh, rather than just, and I'll, I'll sometimes I'll almost even forget like which yeah. bits Christopher's pulling from where in order to make the published Silmarillion. So, um, I, I I'm Great. glad we, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about initial film choices. Um, and by initial we're, we're starting here. Um, it's been too long since I've seen the Bakshi version to rem for me to remember how they did Gimli. I don't remember Gimli's depiction in the Bakshi version. So we can't go quite, I am not prepared to go back quite that far. Um, though it would be interesting, by the way, we should totally do a rewatch of the Bakshi, of the Bakshi film and do an episode on that. Um, I'm definitely down for that. It's been years since I've watched that. And just looking at the image, it just looks like He-Man with a beard. So <laughs> I think, yes. I think yes. it fits in what we probably think of, of the Bakshi. <laughs> Adaptation, yeah. but in terms of character, I don't really recall either. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't remember. Like, I'm tempted to say that, like, my utter lack of memory of Gimli from the film is significant, but it m might not be. I might. There might be really interesting things there that I'm simply forgetting. But, um, uh, but I know that, like, I remember things that were done with Legolas. Like, for instance, replacing Glorfindel with Legolas. The tradition of writing Glorfindel out of the script is. A, a well-established tradition by the time it gets to, uh, by the time it gets to, um, uh, you know, all the all the jokes about Gorfindel being tied up in the closet and Arwen stealing his horse um, are old jokes. Like, I mean, that's um, poor Gorfindel uh, has been locked away for, for, you know, he was locked away back in the 70s. But um, anyway, um, so 
but yeah, anyway, so we can't go back there. But starting with the Lord of the Rings films, right? We talked about Gimli and Gimli's character and Gimli's role to some extent, yeah. right? Um, and um, it, on the one hand, I I can't help but wonder, and we, we, we sort of raised this before, the choice to make Gimli the comical figure that he is, to make him... I don't want to just say the comic relief because he's not the only source of comic relief. He is not like the one clown in a in a in a group of heroes. Um, goodness knows Merry and Pippin do plenty of clowning as well. Yeah, clown isn't the word I would put on him. No. He you know, no. he has some humor, but it's it doesn't feel topical. It feels pretty mature. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so my question is, how much of their choice? to make the dwarf comical in that way is an accident of history? Like, is because they cast John Reese davies who is such a brilliant comic actor? Um, mm. And not only a brilliant comic actor, but a brilliant comic actor who is perfectly positioned to play that particular kind of comedy. Um, yeah. You know, I mean... I. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not a comic actor. Like, you know, he's not like Will Ferrell or, you know, somebody no. like that, right? I mean, he's he, he, he does the, like, almost straight man, but the one who can be relied upon to make funny side comments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. not, again, not to be... Not to be making jokes exactly, but to be and and we talked about his genius for inviting laughter at his own expense without mm -hmm. like yet without wholly degrading his dignity as uh you know like the dignity of his character i mean it's it's a really marvelous line that he walks yeah. there to make himself an object of fun without making you simply like despise right like to um <laughs> to use the obvious contrast in my head from last week, um, the line which Jar Jar Binks so horribly fails uh, to maintain, right? Um, where, where, I mean, again, like where the people of my generation all, you know, wanted to throttle Jar Jar Binks and um, would like, I, could you imagine how audiences would have cheered if they'd actually killed off Jar Jar Binks in the final <laughs> battle, right? Like the, the simple relief of that, right? Anyway, yeah. Point is, it's, I don't know anyone who had that reaction to Gimli. And that's a good comparison because, like, when you're thinking about it, like Jar Jar Binks's jokes, every single one of them, I anticipated in pain, and I rolled my eyes upon delivery. You know, it was yeah. always like, oh god, they did it. Whereas Jar yeah. Jar you're always like, well, what's he going to do next? You know, the anticipation <laughs> was like, I can't wait. And when it delivered, you were laughing. Like it, it was comfortable. You felt safe. It, you know, it, it was a secure space. You didn't yeah. have to feel like bad stuff was going to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, I, um, yeah. So, so again, I, I'm wondering to what extent I, to some, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's like it's not a question that's really answerable. But I have to wonder, since Gimli is the only dwarf presence in the entire Lord of the Rings films. I mean, I, yeah, we see other dwarves there at the Council of Elrond whom we don't but, know who they are yeah, and they don't do anything or ever say anything. Um, so I'm not counting them, right? Apart from those cameo 
uh, eye candy dwarves that we get in the Council of Elrond. <laughs> and they're, they're, I mean, they're only there to show us that dwarves exist in the world. Yeah, like, they're, they're just there for demographic they're, reasons. They're yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're props. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, so, so they, uh, apart from them, I, I don't think there's ever a single dwarf who shows up on camera even at any point in the whole rest of the Lord of the Rings film. So, um, so John Rhys Davies, like the character played by John Rhys Davies is dwarves in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, if it weren't, for John Rhys Davies, like if they didn't have a brilliant comic actor playing Gimli, um, would they have made the same choice? Um, mm. Did they? Did, did do we know? Did they? I mean, you you might remember from the commentaries better than I. Did they say that they like that this was their plan? Like they wanted John Rhys Davies for the part because they planned to make Gimli comic relief, or is that something that kind of developed? Because they had John Reese Davies, you know what I mean? I don't remember specifically, but I, I vaguely do remember it being like we wanted him. Mm -hmm. Like, so I don't know what came first, the humor or the actor. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if they said we want a, a brilliantly comedic actor, but I do vaguely remember them saying this is who they wanted for the role. They, they really but I don't him, vaguely yeah. remember them talking about two or three other contenders, and now I don't remember who those were, but okay. yeah, he was definitely, you know, front runner. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, so on the one hand, it makes a certain if you think about thinking back to the question of like Gimli's role in the fellowship, right? Gimli and Legolas are the two um they're the two most other members of the fellowship. I mean mm -hmm. hobbits are other too from our perspective, but there's four of them, right? Like four demographic like they're and we yeah. saw their life a lot at the beginning. We know yeah. where they came from. We saw other hobbits. We, we saw start how they off for, in their scale. Yeah. 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 That is our home base. We know what that is. Right. And it's the very similar to human home base. So that's relatable. Yeah. yeah. Similar, but just different in scale. Um, and of course, like this, I mean, was one of the things that the films accomplish kind of brilliantly is orienting us into the film world in the Shire such that when we start seeing normal sized humans, they look like monsters, right? Yeah. Like in, in the Brie scenes, of course, in particular, I'm thinking of here. And even Gandalf hitting his head in the rafters of Bag End, uh, yeah. uh, you know, serves that serves that end. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, but but so as I, so you've got like the the Hobbit contingents, which are kind of normalized, especially through our filmic experience in the first part of the yeah. film. Um, and then you've got the humans and Gandalf is, I mean, he's kind of other, he's a, but he's a, he's a special case, right? And he's at home everywhere, right? He's at home in the Shire at the beginning is at home with the humans and he kind of, and he looks like a human, like there's not much that's different about him. Right. But, uh, Legolas and Gimli are, are the two that don't fit into either as our two major demographics that we're sort of comfortable, we're comfortable with humans by default. Cause like. Most of us are humans, and so like we connect with that, and we've been led to connect to the hobbits, and they are numerous uh, in the, in the fellowship. So in the middle we have Legolas and Gimli. Legolas, elves are other in certain ways, right? But Gimli is more different than the, in that yeah. he, like size wise, he's unique. 
Like he's the one who's in between. He's he's neither he's neither nor right. I mean, I love the fact that the, I, this is one of the things that I remember that John Reese Davies is so much taller than the the four guys yeah. who played the hobbits. They didn't have to scale separately for him, right? Yeah. They just used the hobbit scale and made him big by hobbit scale. And made that right? work. Yeah, yeah, um, which I think is cool. I think that's really fun. Um, but uh, and, just, and just what you're saying about like. Uh, other in screen time and familiarity like we see a lot of elves we see a lot yes. of elf home we yes. you know we go to gladriel's home we go to elrond's home like we see the space that they exist in the only space we see of dwarves is dead and moldering and decaying so like we don't have any living thriving example of dwarf culture except ghibli yes. so he does yeah. have a big old weight to carry on his shoulders yeah he does and that makes it particularly interesting that he becomes the comic relief, that he becomes the figure of fun. Um, that that seems to be a kind of way to handle his otherness in some ways. Like his, his um, one way or another, he was going to be an oddball, right, in the company. Like even just visually, even just physically, he's an oddball in the company. He's the one like tweener in size. Um, mm. And, and they chose to make him comic again, done very well yeah. and done without denigration. I think of his character. I mean, there are many Gimli is, uh, and in my experience talking to Tolkien fans, um, Gimli is rarely in people's top three things I was most annoyed by, you know, like for, for Tolkien purists, Gimli is rarely the top of the list, but often Gimli is somewhere on the list, yeah. right? Near the bottom of like, man, like Gimli is so great. And he gets made into like, we're just prompted to laugh at him all the time uh, in the films. Um, again, I don't think he doesn't get into Faramir territory because, like, despite the fact that we are invited to laugh at him lots of times, uh, John Reese davies can pull it off that he can in, he can be acting like a clown in one moment, inviting us to laugh at him, and yet deliver a heroic line in the next, you know, in, in the next scene. So, like, that's um, and that happens, right? You know, we get that from 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 Gimli at several points in the film. Um, there are even those moments which are like both at once which both like partake of the kind of like comic feel mm -hmm. of Gimli's character whilst, while also being heroic. Like the, I'm thinking here of uh, Gimli in the chamber of Mazarbal saying like, you know, we're talking about the orcs and saying like, they will find that there is one dwarf here that still draws breath. Right. Um, like on the one hand, that's very similar to Gimli's spirit of like fun, but it's not yeah. fun. Like we're, we're not laughing at him when he says that. And yet, it's demonstrably the same sort of spirit that he's speaking with as when he, you know, is being, you know, gruff and funny and inviting us to inviting us to to to, to laugh at him. Um, but um, so, I mean, I do think I do think they walk the line really, really interestingly, like really well and I, there. And I do wonder how much, like you said, that that. Uh... John Rhys Davies brought into that because we do know that rewrites happened throughout the entire right. production. Like there were right. loads of opportunities that they stuck extra things in um, or redid things. And 
we also know at certain points they just left the cameras rolling and John Rhys Davis would come up with 17 different options for what to do with that, you <laughs> right. know? So right. Right. it could just be whatever tickled them that moment or made the group laugh the hardest and it came out as trite to us, but it came out as perfect and on point in those 17 options. Like right. Right. there's so many factors that can weigh into like how that would fall. But it's so interesting for us looking at it from this side being like, but this is what's defining dwarf. So that what could have been a very quick, easy decision on set because it made people laugh now has such implications to the whole like understanding of that culture. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Uh, yeah, exactly. So one of the reasons I was bringing up the oddball thing is that it seems to me very significant, therefore, that when Peter Jackson's team rolls around to the Hobbit films, now suddenly we are in a totally different space. Right now, dwarves are the norm. Now we're looking at a party of 15 people, 13 of whom are dwarves. <laughs> right. So now we're living in a dwarvish world. The dwarves are no longer there. Now the opposite of the oddballs. Right. Anyone who's not a dwarf is an oddball now, yeah. uh, visually and culturally in the context of The Hobbit. And so the, one of the really remarkable challenges they have is like, how do they maintain consistency with what they established? Um, what we saw not just of Gimli personally, but what he was, what we were instructed to believe he represented about dwarf culture. Right. Um, and, but now how do we, how do they do that? How do they translate that into the context of a story, which is now dwarf frame of reference from beginning to end, basically. Um, and in which the Hobbit is supposed to look out of place and be out of place for most of the story. And indeed, like, if anything, I thought that, um, the thinking about Martin Freeman's depiction and about the way they did Bilbo, um, I don't think they, I don't think they went too far at any point in making Bilbo out of place. If anything, he was acclimated almost too fast. I think, um, I would have preferred even to see him even more like, um, there weren't that many moments in the films which felt to me like those moments in the book. So those repeated moments in the book when he's imagining himself back by his hearth with the kettle just beginning to sing, uh, not for the last time, right? Um, uh, I, I, I could have done with even more Bilbo being uncomfortable and, and not, you know, in his comfort zone on the adventure, right? Even then we got... Um, Anyway, again, the point is simply that they they didn't even play the oddball care the the oddball card with Bilbo, you know, to the to the, to the max there. Um, but the dwarves are now definitely the norm. So, what what is your feeling about how they thinking, especially now? Trying not to think about where it went in the end. Um, but I, I think almost everybody agrees that I've talked to that the, of the Hobbit films, the first was the best and the beginning was the best of all. Like it was, you know, half an hour into the first Hobbit film, most people had fairly high expectations, I think, yeah. for, you know, where the whole thing was going to go. Yeah. Um, in particular, like the high watermark, I think, of those whole, whole films is the Far Over the Misty Mountains Cold Song. Uh, that mm. the dwarves sing in Bilbo's house. Um, mm. uh, that was oh, that. was remarkable and really well yeah. done. Um, but um, 
but in any case, so like, what are your thoughts about how, like, from a sort of from an adaptation standpoint, knowing where the Peter Jackson team was coming from, you know, what they did to sort of establish dwarves yeah. as the new normal in, uh, you know. And and a really interesting thought, too, that it's pretty much the same team doing this. So rarely do we have that kind of opportunity mm -hmm. to look at something right. like this, too. So we're not doing backsheet to this. This right. is right. the same team from A to yeah. B. Um, so it, it, it's a really neat one to look at of how they kind of pivoted to give this different depiction. But the thing that I, I loved about that whole tone was the pacing. They mm -hmm. just seem to get everybody's voice everybody's character everybody's kind of like history and even insecurities in some of those mm -hmm. moments like you mm -hmm. just saw a really beautiful character depiction in the first like half hour of all of them yes. um and and having it culminate in this really beautiful thing that that their culture values they all know the same song this is what they find important yeah that all was covered in such a great way in a sh pretty short amount of screen time that yeah the expectation was real high we were on board i will follow this culture i am on like <laughs> right. it's great great right. yeah i feel like it was set up really strongly and i didn't think it varied that to i didn't i didn't it didn't feel alien to me compared to gimli Mm -hmm. it, it, mm -hmm. it felt like it could exist in the same world and yes. Gimli was the next generation on so this leading into Gimli makes sense because yeah I mean you can start taking it into this like Gimli's one individual in this entire culture right. of people most of people right. right I could see if there are differences it might just be down to Gimli being different you know right. and right and here we are looking at this big group of of dwarves and they all make sense too so we're seeing a lot of individuals that any kind of differentiation between Gimli and that group makes sense because they're different right. people right but it was so nice to have that moment of seeing that culture um and I do think that set up the Hobbit films really well they just didn't deliver the way we wanted right. them to right <laughs> and and Thorin is really the heart of that right you know Thorin mm. becomes the one do we ever does Richard Armitage ever make us laugh on purpose in the Hobbit films? I don't think he does. I mean, he's very serious. Like the character of Thorin and Richard Armitage's playing of Thorin is serious and grim. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, pretty heavy. Now, it's easy enough to do that. Like Thorin can play the heavy, serious, sort of epic drama, uh, emotional uh you know, freight um, side of the equation because you've got plenty of other dwarves to be comical as they were. And there were several of the dwarves who were sort of... Um, the Marion Pippins. Yeah, nothing but comical, basically. I mean, like, whose, whose contribution was comical. I will add, by the way, what you were also suggesting there. One of the things that was on my shortest list of things that I thought were one of the biggest challenges for adaptation of The Hobbit to film was the sheer quantity of dwarves. Thirteen is a ridiculous number of characters. I mean, not to mention fifteen. But in a sense, Bilbo and Gandalf were almost free, right? Because mm. we already sort of... We knew Gandalf already very well. And Bilbo was, you know... Uh, also kind of known and also sort of Frodo adjacent. So, you know, yeah. we, we, we were like, we were, we were well schooled for Bilbo. And so that wasn't hard, but 13 separate dwarves. 
Um, it's and, and usually the first response I get to that is, yeah, but there were nine in the fellowship. Well, yeah, but the nine were super strong individuals, you know, right. like very, and very different. Yeah. And they went off on different adventures to different places and small groups. This is one cohort of 13 yeah. that's yeah. to stick together for the majority. Yeah, exactly. And, the whole and to be perfectly honest, I still have, I still struggled telling them apart. So like, while they, I do think they did a good job of, of showing us that, especially in that first half hour, constantly through the rest of the film, I was like, which one's that? Which one is that? Oh, is he yeah, the is one? Ori no. or, yeah, yeah, it's, no, exactly. Tricksy. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is exactly as uh, Edith was just saying, Tolkien doesn't try to differentiate the dwarves. I mean, Tolkien, and, and it's, this is actually something that's very perceptible when you look at the manuscript development. Um, as Tolkien, from, from his first draft of The Hobbit to his final version of The Hobbit, there is a consistent trend in the direction of limiting the number of dwarves who speak. Um, he was constantly, like the, in the first draft, his first impulse was to be like, I need a dwarf to say something. Who hasn't talked? Um, you know, uh, Nori, let's make Nori say this, right? Um, because he seemed to be trying to kind of spread it out and give a, you know, uh, give everybody a, a job, right? Um, but as he revised, he wisely, I think, um, reallocated those speech, those speeches to a small number of dwarves so that in the end we have Thorin, who is important to matters. We have Balin, who is the lookout guy and the senior guy who is uh, like, you know, Thorin's second in command, basically, and who also is, um, you know, particularly friendly to Bilbo. Right. You have uh, Bumber, who is the comic relief. Uh, you have Dory, who is a still a pretty minor character, but he's sort of the like mainstream kind of like rank and file dwarf sort of doofus, basically. I mean, like he, he doesn't have any is nothing special about him. He seems to me to kind of represent the like Bilbo's relationship. He's like the spokesperson for Bilbo's relationship with like the like again, the sort of rank and file dwarves. He's like the default uh, background dwarf, basically. But he's the one who keeps like when Bilbo just needs to interact with somebody. Um, you know, like it's Dory who's carrying him when uh, he falls, tumbles down, and and ends yeah. up meeting Gollum. Right? It's like Dory it. whose legs he's clinging to when he's flying away with the eagles. Right? And uh, Madagoc here, Dory was a bit of a mother hen. Yeah, <laughs> right to some yeah. extent. Right? Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so, um, um, yeah, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so they, um, um, I'd, and uh, uh, no, 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 um, uh, Bilbo isn't lucky number 13. He is lucky number 14. Like, he is the number to keep it from being third. 13 is an unlucky number. Um, it's bad luck to set out with 13 people in the party and Bilbo is the lucky number so as to prevent the party from being only 13. That's why he's getting a, he's getting a, a by his contract, a one fourteenth share, uh, of the, of the treasure. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, so, so yeah, so Tolkien, but see, but this is a classic, this is why it was on my short list of things that I thought was going to be so challenging because it's a classic example of, things you can do in a book that you can't really do in a film, right? If you're going to have a central group of protagonists who are traveling together and whom the audience is 
you know, traveling with and who are involved on screen in all of the adventures. And as you say, don't split up. Don't, you know, they're just in a pack the whole time. Um, in a book, you can just have a bunch of nameless dwarves, not nameless, but a bunch of faceless dwarves who yeah. never say anything and who are who are kind of filler. I mean, like... Yeah, they, they just move the thing along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just say, like, all 13 dwarves were there. But in the film, when you're when you're actually looking at 14 or 15 people, counting Gandalf, standing there, right? Um, and you've got some who never say anything, who just are like... I mean, if, if there were just some whose name who were introduced to once, right? But who never say anything and never make any clear contribution to the action and have nothing distinctive about them at all, um, then um, you know, and they're they're just kind of like going around in a herd. It would be weird. It would be very strange. And boring. You know, like you need something in a film to move the story along so it has to work in a, a story framework, but also to like emotionally attach to and there's nothing in that to attach to. So um, Madagor pointed out, you know, they did a good job differentiating them visually. They did, you know, the different beards, the different lengths, the different colors, uh, even a little bit of height. Like there was definitely mm-hmm. stuff that marked them separately. But yes. when I started thinking about them, I couldn't help but compare them to the Lost Boys and Peter Pan. Yeah. Like those are all young boy orphans. You could say that is one monotonous unit. Uh, yeah. 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 One unit that is, is yeah. not differentiated either. But when you start pulling them out into these individual characters, then there's a real personality with each of them because that's what they made happen. So I feel like the yeah. film was pretty good at pulling out some of those individual characteristics. But when you're doing that, it does kind of cheapen might be the word I'm going for. It kind of cheapens the character because you're giving them a caricature as yeah. opposed to like depth. Because you, there's no time for depth times 13. No, yeah. there's just topical. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's the funny one. That's the silly one. That's the smart one. That's the that's the one with know, the axe sticking out of his head. That's the one that fights with daggers instead of axes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they basically created Sleepy Happy Dumpy. Dumpy? Dumpy. <laughs> Sleepy Happy Grumpy. <laughs> Dumpy. <laughs> I, think, I think Dumpy would have been a good dwarf. <laughs> that Maybe that was the 13th one. Uh, Who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the um sorry i'm gonna be laughing about that for a while um yeah bomber is dumpy dwarf that's, that's clearly true phil i absolutely agree um but um uh yeah yeah I, and actually that's you were right to bring that like that's how disney distinguished them yeah right D- disney distinguished them not only by giving them names but like giving each of the like their name was their, their one identity. caricatured thing right yeah exactly their one identity um, and that makes it easier to, um, yeah. uh, to, to not only keep them straight, um, but to, and also to provide visual cues, right? Like it's, um, you can always tell and to write jokes, yeah. you know, yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty easy to see how things are going to go when Dumpy comes into the scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. Um, but, um, Anyway, so but so of course, like again, when I when I remember way back in the riddles in the dark days when we were speculating about this, one of the questions we were talking about, I think, pretty early on, was, are they going to cut dwarves? Because on the one hand, that would seem like a, that's an obvious solution to this problem. Like thirteen mm. is too many dwarves. Let's wow. send him off on the road with like five dwarves or six dwarves. Um, but of course, it's it's hard. Like 
I think they were rightly thinking that people would be up in arms if Bilbo went on the road with only five dwarves instead of right. 13 dwarves. And then you'd get the, you'd get the, um, uh, you'd get, um, it, you'd, you'd lose the lucky number element. Right. Um, uh, you know, so it, it's, it was a difficult choice for them to make. I think they, I, I, of any issue I have with the Hobbit films, I don't have any problems with that. But again, in the context of, in some ways, this seems to me like one of the really interesting framing elements that, I won't say determines, that's too strong a word, but had a significant impact on the choices mm. they made in their depictions, right? Just as in The Lord of the Rings, the fact that not only do they only have Gimli, but that Gimli is the oddball, the biggest oddball yeah. in, the, in, the, in the Fellowship, and is alone in the sense of being the only dwarf through the entire show. And, and as you pointed out, not only the only dwarf, but the only living representative of dwarfness, unlike Legolas, with whom we get lots of elves. Even we, yeah. me, even when we meet him in the from the very beginning, when we meet Legolas, I talked about him feeling like more of an insider because of how he and Aragorn are already buds, right? Um, but even if you think about it at the Council of Elrond, right in the debate in the Council of Elrond in the film, Legolas is kind of speaking on behalf of elves yes. there in and, an elf place. In an elf place, exactly. Yeah. Like being led by an elf higher level person, being, yeah. you know, escorted by lots of other higher level elves. Like it's, he's definitely not on his own. Exactly. And, and you so get the feeling that yeah. he is some sort of a prince. You get that kind of royal vibe where yes. we have nothing to give us that impression of Gimli, which he is, but like, he we is, don't, but yeah, 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 sort of. Yeah. But we don't have that kind of gravitas coming along with his character. Exactly. So that fact. Right. That like just uh, it's just one of the parameters that they were working with in doing Gimli's character, that he is solitary and an oddball uh, and the most kind of out of pay out of step with everybody else. Again, even visually was one of the was the parameter that they, you know, had to integrate creatively. The we have to integrate 13 bloody dwarves into this story is the parameter that they were dealing with in the Hobbit films. And I think yeah. that that parameter is clearly as influential. Um, one of the reasons, it seems to me almost inescapable, even if Gimli had not been comical, right? Even if John Rhys Davies had said no, right? And they'd ended up, you know, casting, I don't know whom, right? Um, uh, John Malkovich or somebody, you know, as Gimli. <laughs> Isn't that oh a fun thought exercise? <laughs> I really want to see that Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, even if, so like, even if they'd gone in that direction, right, with Gimli's character. So I was trying to think of a, a really good actor who is not comic. <laughs> you know, so anyway, um, then um, uh, on the other side, right, you have... Um, I think they would still have had to do a lot of the jokes and gags that they did. Um, or rather, let me say, it would still have made sense to do the jokes and gags that they did in the Hobbit films because they were forced to present, as you were saying, like the parameters almost compel multiple caricatures. Right. In mm -hmm. order to because we don't have time for deep character development for everybody. They even did deep character development for more of the like the character development we got with 
see, I'm James. It was Bofer. Biffer was the one with the axe in the head, and his brother Bofer was the one who got more lines and had like soulful conversations with Bilbo, as I recall. Um, I'm like looking them up. Like, hang on, I've got my chart. Yeah, the yeah. the one with the winged hat, Edith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's um, yeah. again. See, Edith, that's exactly it. Like. The one who wears that that's, hat, like you've got to give him a, you've got to give him a different that's hat. What so that, yes, that's what we need. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The one played by Jimmy Nesbitt. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so like he's an example of one of the dwarves and Bofer is a, is in, in the Hobbit, in the book. Bofer is absolutely one of the faceless crowd. Like he is one of the filler Hobbits um, who barely ever even comes up except in a list. And, um, Oh, dwarves. I said hobbits. Dwarves. Yes. Dwarves. In right. the hobbit. We all know. Um, and um, they actually gave him some depth of character and background and connection with Bilbo, which like far transcends anything that Bofer got in the book. Um, so again, I, I mean, I'm, I, when I when when we talk this way, I'm not, I want to I want to emphasize that I'm not insulting the Hobbit movies, but I will insult the Hobbit movies in other ways. But I'm not insulting the Hobbit movies when not I say this, this. <laughs> not, not in this way. Like it does seem to me an almost inescapable outcome of simply having that many characters. And if you're going to do a caricature, it, I, it's going to be funny. Like comedy is going to happen whether you mean it or not. So you might as well mean it. Seems to me yeah. to be the. I mean, like how could you do? like solemn caricature that doesn't come off as funny. I mean, you'd at least be running the risk of having people laugh at something you didn't mean them to laugh at. You might as well, (laughs) you know, kind of uh, just dive into that direction. Um, But um, anyway. And and I think there's a certain element of the dwarves that do lend themselves to comedy, you know, Mm -hmm. like they just Mm -hmm. seem to be that jovial beer drinking, you know, kind of crew. Sure. And that's and that's of course the other element is that the mm-hmm. Hobbit is funny, and this I know mm-hmm. was one of the things that they attempted. They attempted to take the comedy, the comedic value of the Hobbit seriously in the film. They wanted the films to be light and comedic, in a way that is similar to the way that the yeah. books the book was light and comedic. Um, that's a bigger topic, and I think yeah. one of the more significant. I, you know, I think that's uh, in the uh, it's one of the significant sort of root failures of the Hobbit films, in my opinion, um, uh, that attempt that it tried and, to be light, that, or it that it tried to be up. light, that the way it was trying to be light and dark at the same time, the way in which it it it, it was it was trying to. It's an understandable and even in its way, an admirable thing for them to say. The Hobbit is light and comical. We want this to be light and comical as well. But simultaneously, they were also saying the Lord of the Rings is a great epic story. The Hobbit is the prequel that sets up that great, dark, epic story. We want to tell the great, dark. We want to show how it was the great, dark, epic prequel of the great, dark, epic Lord of the Rings story. But also we want to make it light and comical like I, that. I, I just I did not think that that worked. Um, the two of them together. Um yeah, 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 um, yeah, and, and yeah, I, yeah. Dissonance is probably one of the Phil, one of the words I would use because again we keep taking it back to music, but like 
tone is really the issue there. And yeah. when you you can absolutely have different notes of tone throughout that. So like there's comedic moments in Lord of the Rings as well as, you know, the the big heavies. But the the tone is pretty constant throughout. We know there's little peaks and troughs, troughs of moments, but the tone is pretty solid. Like this is an epic yeah. serious story of yeah. real life people and real emotions and dramas and trials and whatnot. Hobbit, I don't think we really have that. Like yeah. the tone is just kind of like I don't know. Let's just wander and see what happens. And so it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, yeah. The even in moments in the Lord of the Rings that I find objectionable, like I cited the dwarves are natural sprinters scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where I think that the the comedy, the the way in which we're being asked to laugh at Gimli, that's one of the places where it feels to me most most grating, where where it fits least well. Um, with the you know sort of the the dramatic action that's that's happening at that moment, um, again even there I'm not saying it's utterly horrible. That's one of the places where it grates on me most. But even when I take that, even when I take what I think is one of the least successful moments of dwarf comedy in the Lord of the Rings, and compare it to The Hobbit, it's still night and day as far as how much more successful it was, even at its lowest points. The Lord of the Rings film never becomes silly. Right. The Hobbit films are silly many times. I mean, like, yeah. think of the like the naked pyramid in the statue in Rivendell. I mean, seriously, like yeah. that is, um, yeah. Um, and I, I just, I don't, um, yeah. It, it's it, it it goes in a it, it's not just like we're gonna do it but more because you know it's it goes it goes way over a line I think and just to comment on Phil's other part of his statement how much of the distance because the handover from Guillermo del Toro to Peter Jackson I mean we won't know because we weren't in the room but I mean it was Guillermo del Toro who started this and then Peter Jackson yeah. took over so he didn't have the same prep time and involvement in early drafts of script to put his own stamp on it. It's kind of more like he didn't want the ship to sink. So he picked up the helm at the last minute, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's definitely the vibe I've gotten from the whole development side of it, but he was still the director. Like he absolutely still could change the tone and change the lines and change the Like you still have that ability. So maybe he didn't have the same, attention and passion that he brought to Lord of the Rings because that was a passion project of his and that was a huge you know moment for him to take that up and realize that vision and then you're kind of tapped out right like I I the only big thing I can compare to in my life is finishing my PhD and if somebody had offered me another PhD 12 months after I'd finished my first PhD I would have laughed in their face and run the other direction (laughs) right right well it's funny because the yeah, no, no, sorry, sorry, go ahead, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, sorry, I was just, I imagine picking that up was not a fresh brain. That was right. a brain that lived in this world and could get it done. You know, it was somebody that was well-practiced and could get it done and, and do a decent job, and I think he did that, but yeah. it wasn't yeah. the same inspiration that we saw in, in the first round. Exactly, and um, to me, the really interesting parallel um, is that... Um, Another person who felt similar to that was Tolkien when asked to write a sequel to The Hobbit. And he was like, I got nothing. I, 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 you know, I, um, you know, I had a bunch of fun ideas, 
but I put all my, I didn't save any fun ideas. <laughs> like I put them all in the Hobbit book. Like that was, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of throwing everything together there. Like I didn't, I didn't hold anything back. Like I don't, I don't have, um, I don't have anything more. Now, of course, like the irony there is that Tolkien then goes on to write, you know, the greatest book things. of the 20th century. Um, but notice how that happened, right? It did not happen because he was like, I'm going to try to just like recreate the magic of what I did before. Instead, what he did was it, he allowed it to grow into something totally different, right? He, he moved um, it along. He, 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 he began, right? He forced himself and it did seem forcing. He was wanting to work on the Silmarillion instead. Uh, he was working on the Silmarillion instead and then was only forced to abandon it and go back. Um, I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize. I'm not saying like he went back to it with loathing, but he went back to it with little plan and with mm -hmm. much less enthusiasm than he had been working on the Silmarillion stuff. Um, less enthusiasm by all indicators. Um, to sit down and give a fair shake at making a sequel to The Hobbit. And mm -hmm. the the transformative thing that occurred was the moment when he discovered a new story. That was something quite, and stopped trying to force it to be, you know, what it wasn't going to end up being. And I mean, it still was, you can see him still th assuming for a long time um, afterwards that this was still kind of going to be like a Hobbit story, but it was already, it had already begun to change and, uh, and changes pretty significantly. Um, uh, not too long into it, but that's the difference, right? In the end, it seems that um, that's that's sort of the step that seems not to have happened with Peter mm -hmm. Jackson and team. And again, I, I don't want to like cast stones, especially under the circum. I mean, the 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 realities of you know production time and and deadlines and things like that. That's those are real constraints, right? And um, yeah. he didn't have seventeen years. Uh, <laughs> which is what okay, Tolkien wrote it in only about fourteen years, but still, like he didn't have that. That that, that was a luxury Jackson did not have. And like I know we're kind of drifting off of the dwarf focus, but like I also just can't help but think of the difference of process because we're taking one fairly short book and turning it into three quite long films. Yes. Versus three very long books into three what I would call short films, even though they're very long in comparison to what the ground they had to cover. Absolutely. That was a absolutely. very different adaptation process. And yeah. yes, they added lots of stuff into the Hobbits to kind of stretch and eat that out. But they were starting with a very different source material than what they had for Lord of the Rings. So that's a really different procedure to adapt yeah. that. It is. And this is something that I think uh, I've um, often historically been frustrated when people talk about that. Um, like when people say Hobbit films are bad because they took this little, you know, book and stretched it into three big films. No, like there is more. Con they they would have to have cut content from The Hobbit. You know, like, yes, it's a small book, but the proportion of book to film. Like, again, people I, I feel like people often misunderstand this, like the I, the very idea that a feature film, two to three hours is the logical adaptation size like that that corresponds in some way to a novel is ridiculous like right. you have to you have to attack a novel with an axe 
to tell a two hour version of that story. I'm um, sure I've said this before, but there is, a, I think, I forget his name, there's a French filmmaker that tried to do a word for word adaptation of a novel and it ended up being like 19 hours or yeah, something. It is. Yeah. The, the unabridged <laughs> audiobook of The Hobbit is 11 hours long. <laughs> like, it's a long story. And that's yeah. just reading it, not showing yeah, it. You not know? showing it. There would be, there would be things you'd have to add in order to, in, in order to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so I always feel that that now again, I'm not, but however, I'm not saying that it's incorrect that right. the process, uh, because what you said is exactly the thing that I think is exactly correct, but which I think people don't talk about. It's not that you're forced to like stretch and strain the story to make it three films. You could easily make the Hobbit into three films, um, especially when you're doing what they were doing which is connecting it explicitly to the Lord of the Rings story as Tolkien didn't do in The Hobbit for the very good reason that it didn't exist when he wrote The Hobbit, right? Um, so there is plenty of... When you take The Hobbit text plus all of the extra backstory that Tolkien developed after writing The Hobbit, right, in the context of The Lord of the Rings, the way the White Council and the confrontation with Sauron gets developed, for instance, and and uh, you know the way that that one brief reference to Gandalf going to the the dungeons of the Necromancer in Dol Guldur in Chapter One of the Hobbit then becomes this big whole thing, right? Um, with the discovery of Sauron and everything, but that's not what it is, right? In the Hobbit itself, anyway. So when you take not only the Hobbit plus that extra, to use the word that I dislike, canonical stuff, right? Not even stuff that they're making up. I'm not talking about the tombs of the Nazgul or any of that stuff, right? Or sandworms. I just am talking about the actual material. There's plenty of material for yeah. three films. Like, that is not where the problem lies. The problem is, exactly as you say, the process of adaptation was quite different. And to try to... Again, it feels like the pressure to have a result, which is this, like, you're going to do two different processes and produce, in the end, two, like, comparable things. Like, he was he was supposed to somehow produce the Lord of the Rings films again, even though by a, a wholly different process. And, you know, therefore, right. like, the relationship is completely different. It's right. that's a that's a huge ask. That is a lot. Um, that that is a creative challenge that I think is way harder than a lot of people yeah. think. I, I mean, I hear people dismiss this like, oh, it's because they got greedy and tried to squeeze it into three films. Not saying greed wasn't involved, not saying that that choice wasn't a bad choice, tactically speaking, to make this switch when they did after they were already in production and whatever else. Like, sure, there are lots of ways in which I'm sure that, um, you know, put some very serious uh, impediments uh, and obstacles in the making of that film or the making of good films under those circumstances. But it's not as simplistic. Like, it's you can't just wave your hands and say, like, see, like they were lazy and incompetent the second time. It's legitimately interesting and different what they did. Um, okay, so coming back to dwarves, we're obviously not going to get to the Rings of Power, but that's okay. I'm I actually... I was like, that's okay. I kind of want to spend like a good chunk of time on that, so we'll do that next yeah, week. But, yeah, yeah. Because, of course, as you were saying, it is a unique privilege to look at, to compare the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings films because it's the same team to then take the next step and say, looking at all of the stuff that that team did and then compare it to what this totally different team is doing. Um, is totally really a separate team, question. But, but. And totally different team. I, I mean, I definitely, definitely, 
but film in New Zealand using Weta, like they want it to have the same kind of, yes. you know, same John Howe. They want to have that same kind of vibe as what Jackson created over the course of six films. Like yeah. Jackson has defined what the world thinks yeah. of when they picture Middle Earth. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, I know people are already saying, like, wait, but what about John Howe and Alan Lee? Like, yes, because he used them as their concept artists. So, like, right. all of the visuals have been consistent. Uh, Bakshi, not so much. But everybody else, like, all of them have been really consistent. <laughs> right. So they right. want it to live in this world. So for Jackson to have six years to develop this, he, he kind of did define dwarves as much as Tolkien did. Yeah. Yeah. In, in some respects. So it's, yeah. it is. Oh, absolutely. 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 Um, and this is. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, Phil. I'm laughing at myself. This is. Oh, I'm laughing what... at Phil. Gosh, don't tell me we got sidetracked. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm laughing at myself because this is exactly it, what you just said is exactly what I was talking about in the uh, famous video where I was edited in such a way as to piss everybody off uh, um, back in the fall of last year, um, what I was talking about, about dwarves and dwarf beards in that interview, which, oh, right. by the way, was a two and a half hour discussion I had with the interviewer. And during one long passage of that long discussion, I was talking is, is exactly that phenomenon. The fact that people... Um, People watch the Lord of the Rings films and they think they know what dwarves are and they believe they genuinely believe like they are not just like do they genuinely believe that it is Tolkien's dwarves mm -hmm. that they have in their heads. Right. When in fact, what it is, is Jackson's dwarves that they right. have. And I'm not saying that like and that's a totally different thing. Like, no, I'm not I'm not saying that it's it's inappropriate or whatever it doesn't fit. Um, but the, the whole point of the discussion that I was having is that there are um, there are lots of things that people think they think they know um, yeah. about Tolkien and dwarves and how he depicted dwarves and what he said about dwarves in The Lord of the Rings, which are not true in that framework. Like we are not, in fact, told those things, um, but they get um, they get strongly emphasized in the films and so uh, you know it's it's uh it's complicated but yes that 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 leap um you i think you are absolutely correct that peter jackson defined dwarves and what dwarves are um as much as tolkien did um i do agree and, that and, tolkien and... did more in the silmarillion but for people except for the people who have read the silmarillion uh, you know I think that's well, true. And like what we were saying about Tolkien, like his definition was defined and redefined so many times over the course yes. of 30, 40 years. Jackson had six movies to do it in. So he had to kind of bring some cohesion to it. Yes. So he, I think, gave us a very clear single image of dwarves. But it's a very nuanced image because we have 14 dwarves to really right. explore that right. and a couple different dwarf worlds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um uh yeah, and and cohesion, you are absolutely correct. Tolkien's and again, um uh try telling some people online that 
Tolkien's vision for dwarves is incoherent, and they'll tell you that Tolkien is rolling in his grave now because of yeah, what you just how said. How dare you! But Tolkien is the would be the very first person to say he wanted to rewrite The Hobbit throughout his later life. The Hobbit annoyed him more and more every year after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, because there are several ways in which The Hobbit is not consistent or coherent because of the organic way in which The Lord of the Rings grew out of it. Um, yeah. And that is one of the things, like the dwarves that are depicted through almost all of The Hobbit are is Dwarf 2.0. Like his idea of dwarves had changed from between when he sat down to write The Hobbit and when he finished writing The Lord of the Rings. Like very significantly, yeah. it had shifted. Um, and so when Peter Jackson then is coming to do his depiction, there is a work of cohesion that he has that is not there in the text that he has to bring to the, he has to decide uh, for the text. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. And Edith, I, I, and I, I'm with you in, in many ways. I'm with you um, that uh, Edith was saying, I, I disagree vehemently I, with the, the, the idea of bringing consistency. One of the most charming things about The Hobbit is the authorial interjections. Um, yeah, oh, exactly. Which Tolkien wanted to remove. Like, the, 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 had Tolkien succeeded, had he finished doing his revision of The Hobbit that he began in 1960, which was pretty dreadful, it would have been fairly awful. Um, my characterization of the, the first you know, two and a half chapters that we have of the 1960 Hobbit is it's, it's like the published Hobbit with all the fun sucked out. Uh, basically, is is what is what we it's like. Take everything that that made you smile in the Hobbit and remove it, and then everything that's left is 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 what he was working with, basically. Um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, it's I I I, but I understand Tolkien's drive to do it. Like, and I I can appreciate um, Tolkien's drive to do it. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't do it, and Jackson set out to do it. Jackson had to do it in a sense. I mean, it, that was left to Jackson to do. Um, well, and especially and, if he yeah. wanted to tell a story about dwarves, like you have to be clear about your hero and the world they come in and the culture that they grew up in. Like, it doesn't matter if it's a dwarf or an elf or a human or whatever. Like, you have to know that world inside and out in order to yeah. tell their story. So he had to define it. And yeah. hopefully he used the resources that we all know. But, yeah. you know. Yeah. And in many respects, he did. Again, this is where a lot of people were misunderstanding what I was saying in that video when I was talking about the published text of The Lord of the Rings. And when and when I said in the context of that discussion, Tolkien doesn't say that female dwarves have beards. He doesn't. In The Lord of the Rings, he doesn't say that. Whereas in the in the films, he does say that later on. In the world-building thing that he's doing that, again, is printed in The in the War of the Jewels that we were just discussing, um, he, he, he decides, oh, yeah, dwarf women totally have beards. But that was his reaction to what was said in The Lord of the Rings. He doesn't say it. Whereas, by contrast, Jackson's dwarves, right? Think how the, uh, Jackson makes a whole big joke about the fact that dwarf women have beards on multiple occasions, right? And so, therefore, it becomes something which is, in the mind of viewers, it is Lord of the Rings lore, right? Yeah. That they and and again they're getting that from Jackson. Now I'm I'm not saying that Jackson was making that up out of whole cloth. He's not. He's not. There are sources for that, right? However, um, people don't realize they're not getting that from the text of the Lord of the Rings. They're getting it from Jackson. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, uh, I think. This might be the most laudatory conversation I have had about the Hobbit films in I 10 years. I too. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Thank yeah. You. 
But it's, it's because we're not talking about, you know, story. We're talking about dwarves. Dwarves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, although I think, I mean, I do think the the silliness and the, the those tonal problems of like trying to be serious and comic at the same time and everything just, you know, end up the silliness that gets overlaid over even when we get to, you know, to Dan riding the pig at the end, right? You know, the Bill Connolly character. Yeah. Um, Bill Connolly, by the way, I think is would be my counterexample to like I think John Reese Davies was perfect and he was wonderful like he, um like John Reese Davies doing John Reese Davies things was marvelous for Gimli in in a lot of ways and especially what they were trying to do with Gimli Bill Connolly doing Bill Connolly things as Dan I think was disastrously bad like I and again I'm not even saying I think Bill Connolly did a bad job I, just, I, I think it was horrible casting um, um, anyway so I, well John Rhys Davies they got a Shakespearean actor and she you know like Shakespearean comedy is yeah. funny but it's <laughs> but it's serious and it's right. smart and it's grounded you know like all that stuff and John Rhys Davies can pull that off yeah yeah yeah. Druid's Fire, I think that is probably true. I think that's right. Bill Connolly was a bad Dan, just as Sylvester McCoy was a bad Radagast. Um, and I know, Druid's Fire, uh, how much you do not intend to diss Sylvester McCoy in saying that. I, you know, I think you and I both love Sylvester McCoy uh, and certainly um, love Sylvester McCoy as, as the doctor. But... Um, uh, but I agree. I, I, I think that that whole the whole approach of Radagast to Radagast that was embodied in the casting of Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, we started um, a fight, Corey. Take a breath, yeah, we did. everyone. We did. We did. <laughs> Remember, it's just discussion, appreciation, understanding. <laughs> We're all to be okay. And people can have different opinions. If you like, it's fine for people for people fine to like it. Enjoy totally what you enjoy. Like <laughs> <laughs> Don't take away people's cookies and scones. <laughs> all right. right. We're going to yeah. put a pin in this. Because yeah, we if are. we even think about opening Rings of Power, we're going to have. A oh yeah, it's it's all we're, we're already over time. So, um, so we'll we'll, never say it's just a movie, Phil. That's not a good <laughs> that, argument. That's, that's, that never works. We'll all have <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're just going to start another fight by saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so yes. we'll 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 we'll. Plan to follow this up next time with a discussion of the Rings of Power dwarves and uh, and see what happens. Um, uh, kind of the frame um, that um, uh, that they're working within the relationship with the Jackson films. Um, it's funny. I mean, I know when uh, when we're talking with the Amazon Prime folks, they don't like us to have that conversation. They don't want the focus of the conversation to be on the Peter Jackson films and thinking. But it is very clear. I mean. You yeah. you can't not talk about that, right? You know, yeah. um, and it's, it's we all know it's, it really well, and right. so do they, you know, and so do they, and it's it's a very present reality. Um, so um, anyway, uh, we will next time, next time. I will say one more thing, just in case you guys haven't seen it. Um, there's the Corridor Crew, which I reference a lot on here. They're a YouTube group that talk about special effects. They just did a bit on um, speaking to one of the visual effects guys from Rings of Power. So if you haven't checked it out, that was pretty fascinating about how all the real effects that they use. So awesome. go find that. Cool. Yeah. Neat. See you next week. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you guys next week.
same time. Bye now.